I love this one, Linda. My favorite way to watch a bad guy suffer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, being a writer, what just I'm thinking, does that mean what position am I in while I'm watching him, or is it the suffering that I watch suffering? You're the parking lounger at an execution, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So I'll answer both ways. Laying on my sofa with a nice hot cup of coffee. Watching him, I don't know, uh, drown, I think, would be good. You know, some, some barrel of water that has this steady drip, and he knows it's wow. going to take about four hours. You know, That is frightening how detailed that was. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that was the comedy duo of buddies Tom Bergeron and Lee Child. Both beloved the world over for their work in very different genres. Tom, you know from his hosting duties on three of the most popular television shows of all time, Dancing with the Stars, America's Funniest Home Videos, and Hollywood Squares. Lee has sold over 100 million books alone in the Jack Reacher thriller series. Fortunately for us, (laughs) there's a lot more of them to come. If you're new to the show, welcome, welcome. I am Linda Sievertson, and this is my baby, the Beautiful Writers Podcast. I used to be a full-time writer, having written, ghostwritten, and collaborated on many books throughout my career. I've also spent years as a features editor of a magazine, but this here little gig has captured my heart. Not only am I blessed enough to interview my literary heroes here, but they often come back on to guest co-host for their heroes. I'm still amazed by the whole thing. It does take a ton of time, making my own book writing radically slower. But you know what? I can't imagine having more fun doing anything. And I hope that comes across in what you're about to hear. This is my third best of episode, and I look forward to doing these every summer. Because even though this is my gig, I forget so much of the wisdom and fun that these episodes pack. And the voices, such iconic voices, you guys. Authors you will immediately recognize. And some you'll fall for for the first time. They have the best advice. They are so gracious. They're hilarious, which is key. Because at the end of the day, this has all got to be fun. Life, as you know, is serious enough. You're about to hear from celebrated bestsellers like Abby Wambach, Candace Bergen, Ann Patchett, Seth Godin, Austin Channing Brown, Stephen Pressfield, Meg Wolitzer, Lee Child, and so many others covering topics that run the gamut for writers, going from idea to done and breakout success to staying power. I think summer is the perfect time to reflect on what matters most, to learn from and celebrate those who endeavor to make our world a kinder, saner place through the power of their experience and the power of their pens. Stay with us all the way to the end, too, because I've just now pulled several wise, uplifting snippets from one of the most prolific authors from our archives. I don't know where she's going to be when you hear this episode, but in today's headlines, Marianne Williamson is suddenly very hot in her pursuit of the presidency. Danielle Laporte and I interviewed Marianne on the show during her tour for Tears to Triumph, and she had stunning writing and life advice to share and even gave a hint to where she is now. Who knew? The New York Post just called Marianne the breakout winner of the Democratic debate. CNN declared her a voice of conscience, and the Daily Mail says a star is born. And guess where it all started? You guessed it, 
back with the power of the pen. Let's dive in, shall we? Welcome. We're going to start with my dear friend and mentor, Betsy Rappaport, and I interviewing actress and two-time New York Times bestselling memoirist, Candace Bergen. They had collaborated together on Candace's book, A Fine Romance. And we went from talking about how she'd hosted SNL six times to the recent Murphy Brown. Betsy wanted to know if Candace had been invited to contribute to the season breakdown for the reboot like she had done in the past. Hmm. The writer's room is a very private room. I've never been in a writer's room except to deliver fake dog shit and someone's sandwich. But, and that was just for <laughs> What now? <laughs> oh, that. Of course. <laughs> but, uh, no, I've never been in the writer's room. And I don't belong there. I don't mean to ascribe it magical powers, but it's a very specific energy. And they, on the reboot, they had great energy in the writer's room. And it takes very little to throw that off. Where Candace differs from most of my guests who had become household names before the advent of social media, she's really embracing posting pictures and comments on her own. Her Instagram account is wildly entertaining. I asked Candace to talk about a post of hers that went viral. That was a good one. And that, I never got, I broke the internet or something with that. It was got <laughs> huge. I never got so many hits. Jane Fonda had brought eclipse-watching cardboard glasses for us right. to watch the eclipse. And I just handed my phone to the producer and said, can you take a snapshot of us watching the eclipse? And we're all actors. We know the drill. So we just did it, and she took the picture, and uh, it flew. Well, it was Diane Keaton, Mary Steenberg, and Jane Fonda and yourself, and you were filming the movie. We were then, filming a movie called The Book Club. Which I loved. Which is and so, so funny. You, you were so, so you good posted that. You posted that yourself on Instagram. I and did, then yes. I, I'm actually able to post on Instagram, which surprises <laughs> me, but I can. <laughs> and I'm, in fact, I'm very proud of my Instagram account. I take great pride in my posts and framing the photographs and trying mm. to come up with a caption that people will... Re- and then I get complaints when I just have like a static photograph without a witty caption. And I yeah. you're complaining now? But, and the women who, it's mostly women who look at it, are always so sweet. There's like none of the internet meanness or anything. The no. Instagram no. group is very well curated. So you went from 5,000 when you posted this. I think you said you had 5,000 followers on Instagram. And then what happened? And now I have almost 140,000, which is minuscule by comparison to a Kardashian. And yet I haven't lowered <laughs> is that the our barometer, really? Country. <laughs> is what? <laughs> That's our barometer, Kardashians? Okay. Yeah. Well, I think it yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> then didn't somebody call you a very funny name that you then... Embrace. Oh, yeah. When I posted the eclipse photograph, I got a troll that said, you guys look like a bunch of tired-ass honky hoes. And I was so, <laughs> I just thrilled to it. So I changed that to my screen name, which yeah. in fact was almost the same screen name. It was 
old white woman, and then it just changed to tired as honky hoes. I was so moved by Ghosted, a novel by author Rosie Walsh, that I was bawling my eyes out at several points throughout. I asked if she would please read to us from the book, the part where our lead characters fall in love. Because don't we all love falling in love? This is, of course, before our protagonist gets ghosted. You, he said quietly. He traced a finger along my hairline. I like you. I like you and me. In fact, I like you and me very much. I smiled right into those kind, sincere eyes, at those laughter lines at the heavy angle of his chin. I took his hand and kissed his fingertips, rough and mottled with splinters after two decades of woodworking. Already it felt like I'd known him for years, for a lifetime. Felt like somebody he'd matched us, maybe at birth, and nudged and aligned and planned and schemed until we finally met six days ago. I just had some very mushy thoughts, I said after a long pause. Oh, me too, he sighed. It feels like the last week's been set to a score of sweeping violins. I laughed, and he kissed my nose, and I wonder how it was that you could spend weeks, months, years even, just chugging along, nothing really changing. And then, in the space of a few hours, the script of your life could be completely rewritten. Had I gone out later that day, I would have got straight on the bus and never met him, and this new feeling of certainty would be no more than an unheard whisper of missed opportunities and bad timing. Now that you see why I love Rosie's writing and reading so much, let's celebrate with her on her U.S. pub day. A book's birthday is exciting, and I wanted to know about the beats of her day from across the pond. Rosie has written other novels before, published in Britain, but nothing that had sold in over 30 countries around the world, each with their own book deal and publishing house, quickly earning her an it girl reputation and a bit of a fortune. This is dream come true stuff right here, you guys. And my guest co-host, also a Penguin novelist, Aditi Karana, she and I were giddy for Rosie. Well, it's been different, of course, because obviously when I have publication day in the United Kingdom, I'm surrounded by lovely warm wishes from my author friends. And of course, I don't really know anyone in literary terms in the States yet. So it's, it's not quite the same, but I've had so many lovely shout outs online. I started the day with a flower delivery from my wonderful agent, Alison Hunter, at Janklo Nesbitt. Uh, uh, and that got the day off to a very good start. And I then spent a while frantically making last-minute adjustments to my website <laughs> so that any incoming readers or, you know, potential readers would be able to see Ghosted first and foremost because obviously it's come out in many territories. So, I, you know, I wanted to make sure it was very prominent there. Um, I then did a couple of social media posts. I did a little boomerang for Instagram of me holding the book, which my nanny took. <laughs> um, whilst we were both trying to distract my child from... He photobombed it several times, but we eventually managed to do one that he didn't photobomb. And then I have been doing radio and podcast interviews since early lunchtime. Um, so actually, I've been confined to my bedroom for most of it. <laughs> I'm sitting here with a fan because it's boiling hot. And because oh, it's never yeah. hot in the UK, nobody has aircon. And as I said, yes, I'm drinking champagne. Reading out loud. We're going to talk about how this practice helps our writing for several reasons. When it comes to extraordinary talent with words, both written and spoken, I think of memoirist and racial justice leader Austin Channing Brown. I asked her to read a passage about why she loves being a black girl 
from her stunning debut, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. When my body stands out and I am tempted to forget my own beauty, I close my eyes and remember the feel of my father's fingers against my scalp, braiding each perfectly parted row while telling me I am not tender-headed, so stop squirming. There was the cooling sensation of blue magic and pink lotion and the smell of hot curling irons as I learned about all the special things my hair can do. Natural or relaxed, braided or dreaded, twisted or knotted, cornrowed or weaved, our hair believes in being free to do what she wants. When I rub cocoa butter into my skin, I remember the warmth of my mother's hands when she used to tell me to get all the hidden spots behind my ankles and around my knees. The memories of her care for my body are a reminder of the care my body deserves. Black women are the backbone and muscle of every church I've attended. They are prophets speaking a word when it seems God is silent. They are hospitality, welcoming with food and kindness, with a seat at the table, with a place you can call home. We are capable of building community anywhere, not just at church or at work, but also in the quote-unquote ethnic hair care section of stores and elevators and other random places where we take the opportunity to simply say, I see you. I love being a Black woman because we are demanding. We demand the right to live as fully human. We demand access, the right to vote, to education, to employment, to housing, to equal treatment under the law. And we do it creatively. Sit-ins and die-ins, signs and songs, writing and filmmaking. We demand because our ancestors did. We demand because we believe in our own dignity. Beautiful, right? Austin and I share the practice of reading our writing out loud before we publish our books, which she brought up when I asked her about her top writing tips. One of them that really stands out for me is being really concerned about how it sounds out loud. Yes. So just like writing it on the page was not enough for me. I read this book out loud probably four or five times because how it sounds in people's heads matters to me as much as like how it looks on the page, you know? And I think part of that comes from just growing up in a black church (laughs) where it's not enough for it to just be written well. Like it also needs to sound really appealing to the ear. And so that was super, super important to me. I think you've absolutely done that. That's actually one of my practices as well. And it's exhausting to read your galleys or the blue lines when they come in from the publisher way ahead of publishing. And they send you these massive pages, right? They're just huge. They come in this huge box. And you sit there, I sit there on the floor of my office each time and I read the whole manuscript out loud, as you just said, several times, which for me is painful because I've already done it, but it's usually gone through the copy editing stage at that point. It is exhausting. It's like 9, 10, 12 hours to read your manuscript out loud. But like you said, it makes it so much better. It's interesting that you said that because when I was reading your book, Austin, I felt like you had done that. I could hear it because it's lyrical. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, it's obvious. I'm really glad to hear that because you're right. I feel like the danger of reading, if there is a danger of reading it so many times is that I became bored with my own book. Yes, yes, yes. And so my editor was like, do not change this whole chapter. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be new to someone else. (laughs) I'm like, oh, that's so boring. I'm sure there's another way I could say this. (laughs) Um, 
I read it both forwards and then I would read it backwards. Yep. To make sure that it sounded good. I ask most of my guests on the show to let us in on their best time wrangling and writing tips. So we're going to play back a bunch of that hard-earned wisdom. We'll start with Ann Patchett, award-winning and international best-selling author of many books and co-owner of Parnassus Books in Nashville. Be prepared to drop your excuses for not writing. Anne, she is not having it. To me, the very best piece of advice is if this is what you want to do, do it. And take a certain amount of time every single day and sit down. And even if you don't write, don't check your phone, don't do anything else, sit down in front of this thing that you keep saying is the most important thing in your life. And Liz Gilbert talks about this, I think, in Big Magic. And she said, people are always, that's it. You know, I work three jobs and I don't have childcare and I don't have this and that. And how can I possibly make the time to write? And Liz said, if you were having an affair, you would find the time. (gasps) Oh! God, that's so good. You would, even if it's just like five minutes in a stairwell, you would find it if it was just this searing hot thing and you wouldn't need to talk about it. It would just be, you would stay awake. You would miss your meals. You would miss anything if it was an affair. So if this writing is the most important thing in your life, then... If it is that important, then no one should be able to tear you away from it. Adrienne LeBlanc was at a conference and somebody said, how can I be a writer? How can I find the time to write? And she said, if you ask that question, then you're not. Just forget it. She said that really the more interesting question is, how can I stop? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, Adrienne. How can I stop? (laughs) Because all I want to do is write. Tim Grawl, most recently the author of Running Down a Dream, has super helpful, albeit a bit twisted, thoughts on time management. I had him on with his dear friend Stephen Pressfield of War of Art fame, who'd been on before. Stephen published Tim's new book and was also on to talk about his latest, The Artist's Journey, I don't know that you're going to want to adopt all of Tim's creative time management habits, but I bet you find something here enormously helpful. I know I have. I always joke that at any time, I would be the easiest person to murder because I'm always, <laughs> there is very little, very, <laughs> there's like no variance to my schedule. I do the same thing at the same time every week. And I just do that so I don't have to think about it. I have tons of checklists for when I have to edit my own podcast. I can get it ready to send out to the editor. It's like 30 steps and I just go through them so I don't have to remember them or worry about forgetting them. I always seek to do things the same way over and over and over and over so that it frees up my mind to think on actual creative things. Mm. I do them so naturally now. I often don't think about them. I just always think of things like anytime I find myself messing up the same way every time or having to rethink through a process, I will stop and make a system out of it. So I keep my keys in the same place. I have like two pairs of jeans and 12 colors of the same t-shirt and I just roll through those. (laughs) 
my point is I'm looking for any way I can systematize things I don't care about. I don't care about how I dress. Just give me something that makes me not look like an idiot and I can just wear that. (laughs) I don't care about my schedule. As long as I can get my work done, it's set. Let me set so I don't have to think about that every day. Same with like eating or exercising. My thing is free up your mind by systematizing things in your life that you don't care about so that you can focus on the things that you do. Next up, related to the topic of time, we'll hear from thriller author Tosca Lee, whose latest, The Line Between, just came out in paperback. Tosca can be particularly obsessive about meeting her deadlines, sitting for more hours than anyone I have ever heard of. After that, we will hear from blockbuster author of 12 novels, Meg Wolitzer, who was recently on to talk about her, The Female Persuasion. I'm pretty sure Meg thought I was accusing her of shirking her deadlines. 20, sometimes 24. Your body hurts when you sit that much and when you're writing that much. I mean, well, everything hurts. It gets harder, too, the older I get. But (laughs) I think that's just kind of how I do it. The closer I get to deadline, the more hours I'm putting in. And then like the last week I quit washing my hair and quit bathing. And <laughs> <laughs> I posted a pet for my husband. When I finished the line between, I was like, okay, I'm done. And he said, that's great. Does this mean you'll bathe now? When you procrastinate on a deadline, what are you doing instead? Why are you assuming I procrastinate on a deadline? Did you hear something? <laughs> Did my editor talk to you? I have eyes, ears, and eyes everywhere. This is an intervention. Is that what you're saying? This whole show? I think procrastination is something that we need to be somewhat forgiving about within ourselves and probably other people. We're not robots. We can't regurgitate things. We've become these creatures who can't bear it when the little wheel spins on the computer an extra few seconds. So when someone is late with something, that's like that writ large. Yeah. But we need time sometimes to replenish our ideas. And I think for writers, deadlines are often really important if you're talking about a publication that's going to be coming out and you have to have that happen. But with a novel, there's a lot of time. I just feel that when I have a bad day, I try to give myself a little bit of a break and not be mean to myself. You could get things from reading something great. I say to students when I teach, if it's not working well, go read something where you feel the writer was really excited when he or she wrote it. You Mm -hmm. need to connect to that feeling of being in love, which is sort of at the beginning of many books. I often find that when faced with a creative project, people will waste time because they're obsessing over something, the news perhaps. In this snippet, famed comedy writer Nell Scavell and I are talking about flow and what it takes to get and stay in flow while writing, especially now when some of us find it hard not to be totally obsessed with politics and what's happening in our country. Nell was actually one of President Obama's writers for the Hollywood Correspondents' Dinner. Her jokes were about Matt Damon and Michelle Obama and maybe a birther joke here or there. So she did not pen Obama's Trump takedown that year that some say inspired the Donald to run for president himself. But we did discuss number 45. 
I wrote a piece at one point called, Is Trump Ruining Your Writing? And I wrote it because all of my clients were calling me like, Linda, oh my God, I'm so depressed. I can't do it. I just watch news all day long. And I'm like, we've got to take our power back, right? But I love working on my art because it does, it makes everything else smaller. I love how you divide it. Can I tell you, long ago, a therapist told me, never let men derail your work. And I thought of that again when Trump came up. (laughs) He's not, he cannot, don't let him derail your work. World events can make us all feel crazy. If you talk with Stephen Pressfield, he thinks being an artist is a big part of the cure. While Rosie Walsh thinks that being isolated all day as a writer is and always the best thing for our mental health. They've got some interesting things to share about how to stay sane. And then Nell Scavell offers her no-nonsense work ethic. I think this whole country right now is having a collective nervous breakdown. That's, (laughs) in some way, I relate it to this exact phenomenon. I'm not sure exactly how it's working, but it has something to do with social media and all of that stuff that makes it so easy to be distracted. And commercial society always trying to put something in front of you that's addictive and that's going to draw you away so that probably 99% of the country are avoiding their artist's journey, whatever that is. Even if their artist's journey is something like designing motorcycles in your garage on the weekend, I think contemporary life is hard. And this idea of trying to face your demons and do what you're put on the planet to do is a big part of it. I think all of writers are a bit crazy. I hope you don't mind me saying that. And no, think, it's true. Think, it's completely I think, true. I, I think it's a very difficult job. We spend a lot of time sitting in a room on yeah. our own, not talking to people. And crucially, and I think this is so important, and I go on and on about this, crucially, we don't get feedback that often. Yeah. Um, I think even if you clean toilets for a living, people say thank you, <laughs> or they give you a tip. You know, there is some process of feedback, whereas... As a writer, you could go months, if not years, without getting feedback from anyone. And I think that that is quite crazy-making, to uh, (laughs) to steal your phrase. And for me, I constantly, you know, it's like having a car. I keep having to go and get it serviced. And so I have a coach who I speak to sometimes who really helps. And just a couple of days ago, we came up with a whole new approach, and we worked out specific hours between which I would work each day because I've really struggled as a new mum to make myself sit and write. And not just that, but we came up with a whole load of affirmations as well, mostly to do with confidence and just feeling sort of easy and calm and just trusting myself. I think that's a problem for most writers. Deep down, we don't trust ourselves to get out. You know, we, mm. for example, when you chop a bit of text out, a bit of prose, I don't know about you too, but I often will like paste that bit of prose into a separate Word document. And it's almost as if I don't trust myself to come up with a great phrase again or a great metaphor. Um, I'm never going to go into that document again I'll never use those words and so that's why I'm trying to use some new affirmations just about trusting myself and just trusting that I'm more than capable and that I've done this quite a few times now and yeah that I can do it the only way to move forward creatively is to allow yourself to be judged and I think that does trip up women more than men I mean no in general people don't love being criticized And when people ask for advice, I would say, try to see feedback as constructive, not critical. Mm -hmm. And 
use feedback to make yourself a better writer or to make yourself more confident that what you did was right Yeah, and evoke the response you wanted. Yeah. The other thing that I thought was so funny was when you said, fearing the blank page is like fearing an empty dog dish. (laughs) Can you explain that? Well, it's just something you feel every day. And I'll be honest, after being a professional writer since 1982 was when I started getting paid. Actually, 81, I started getting paid for writing. That's a long time, sister. It's a long time. I still marvel at how bad my first drafts are. Me too. Me too. You would think by now. I know. (laughs) And yet I finally figured out that's the process. And you start with, that's so filled a blank page. You may throw it out. I can't tell you how many notebooks I have filled with ideas for stories that never panned out and plays and screenplays and pilots and articles. And if you enjoyed the process, you're so far ahead of the game. Oh, I so agree. I had the last two days, I've gone over two chapters about 30 times and they're horrible. Still, they're horrible. But I know in my bones that what I'm saying is interesting and entertaining. I just haven't gotten to it yet. You'll find it. Being embraced by millions doesn't guarantee an artist automatically feels confident. Success at every level is a process, as you'll hear from Candace Bergen and recording artist and new memoirist Taylor Dane. Long before Taylor sold 75 million albums or had 18 top 10 hits, she was opening for artists like Michael Jackson and singing with Prince, which she says took a little getting used to. My guest co-host with Taylor is popular podcaster, TED producer, and media communications coach, Bronwyn Sanglambeni, who, like Taylor, is also a busy mom and business owner who happens to have a rockin' rock band side hustle. There is, in writing a memoir, for me there was at least, huge amounts of anxiety. And you can see it. Sally Field wrote a memoir a few months ago that she really dug deep. And I knew what it cost her because, unfortunately, the person she was writing about had died. So that removed some of it. But it was the most revealing book and brutally honest. But she did a lot of homework. She took writing courses. She prepared herself to write that book. And it showed. And she was unflinching in Mm -hmm. what she wrote about. But there's a huge amount of anxiety that comes about writing, about relationships, about parents. Because if you're going to do it, you have to do it. And you have to also try to do it without hurting people. So it's a very fine line to walk. I was thinking about you, Tay, when I saw A Star is Born. And that scene where Bradley brings Gaga up for the first time. And she's like, no, no. And I was thinking of you. And I was thinking of this bad tour. I mean, you were ready, but God, not really. Talk about trial by fire. When you saw A Star is Born, did that feel familiar to you at all? One of my favorite films. And you know what? They had to sell me on it at first to watch it. And one of my favorite films, because there she is. So honestly, so many people said, God, Taylor, that so reminds me of you. Listen, she's phenomenal. She's so honest. As Talk about a raw performer. But 
when he looked at her finally slowly and he goes, yeah, you just got to trust me. Oh, Jesus. And she, you just got to trust me because really that's what it comes down to. There is either somebody you're going to trust, somebody that you can open that. And that was what we saw, that really special moment where they spoke to each other through the music and it was authentic. Mm. It was real. Mm. It was true. So Taylor, so you're literally like dying inside. I can't go out there. I can't go out there. There's lions ready to eat me. But at some point, your performance self kicks in and you're like, not only am I not going to get eaten, I'm going to turn it out for what out there, which is what you proceeded to do. When did you make that switch psychologically? Walk us through going from, oh my God, I'm going to die to tell it to my heart. Well, this was a 22-year-old girl saying that, go back five years. Every time I walked out the house, you know, I was highly agoraphobic. I'm sure you went through that period. So my point Mm -hmm. was, I learned how to take one step at a time and that I wouldn't die. You learn that it's in your head, it's not necessarily reality. Sharing our work is easier when we don't feel like we're conning the masses. Marketing phenom and international bestseller of 18 books, Seth Godin, came on for a second time while on tour for This Is Marketing. My wing woman in the beautiful writers group, author of Get It Done and Start Right Where You Are, Samantha Bennett, we talked with Seth about how to feel great about what we release into the world. I want to talk about people who are resistant to marketing and for what seems to me to be the issues of sort of false values, the false values of poverty or modesty or selflessness or, you know, like, oh, I can't possibly sully my hands with that dirty, dirty sales and marketing. This weird sort of moral high ground that creative people and artistic people and spiritual development and personal development people often, I think, hide out in. And you talk about authenticity and showing up as a professional, but it also strikes me that if you've got something that you just love to do, then that's a hobby. And that's great. And everybody should have hobbies. Everybody should have two. They're beautiful. <laughs> right? But if you've got something that you really feel like is going to help people, then you need to get behind the marketing. You need to start telling the story about it to say like, oh, I've got this work, but I don't want to do the sales and marketing. It's like, well, I want children, but only when they're quiet and well-behaved. It's like being an aunt, you know? You've got to be a good parent to your child, to your thing, whatever your thing is, and fulfill your obligation on getting it out there. There's so much good stuff in what you just said. We could talk about it the whole time. I need to decode parts of it, so let's start there. If somebody buys something from you for $10, the only reason they are doing it is because they think it's worth $15. Oh. They thought it was worth 5 they wouldn't buy it. Mm-hmm. So they think it's worth 15 and you're offering it to them for 10 You're giving them $5 worth of value for free. And if you refuse to sell it to them, you're stealing from them. And if we look at our work, understanding that what marketers actually do, good marketers, real marketers, marketers that deserve the word marketer, what we do is we make things better by making better things. What we do is show up in front of people who are stuck, who are afraid, who are resistant, who are insecure, who don't know, and we help them get to where they want to go. If you view it that way, more like you are a lifeguard or a teacher, I think you can get past the first line of offense, the first line of, I don't want to do that because I don't want to be a used car salesman. The thing about used car salesmen, the kind that we're thinking about, we don't like them 
Because after we buy the car, we regret it. But I would argue that very few people who read Middlemarch regretted it. Very few <laughs> yeah. people yeah. who listened to Herbie Hancock with, you know, Watermelon Man or whatever classic piece he did regretted it. So if they're not going to regret it, then your work of bringing it to them is a generous act. In this snippet, Bronwyn and I talk with Taylor Dane about laying it all on the line. One of my favorite, favorite quotes from your memoir is when you say, an audience doesn't reward an artist for holding back. I like triple underlined that and dragged my tween daughters into my office and I read it to them. And they're both in musical theater, shout outs to CMT, but they didn't quite understand what it meant. So I explained what I thought it meant, but I wanted to hear in your words, what does that mean? An artist doesn't get rewarded for holding back. Yeah. Listen, I have the privilege and the honor of doing this, which means primarily recording music and touring and being paid for it for the last 30 years. Unbelievable. When I perform live, which I can honestly, and as Linda knows, you know, I tour all the time. Monthly. I'm usually on the road like 16 days. And I don't mean consecutive shows, but what it takes to get there, what it goes. And what I felt in my 20s, emerging pop star and then superstar. And then what I felt like when things got lean or I can promise you every audience, once you get out of your own way and stop thinking about it, when you're on stage for me and for the artists I've watched and performed, if you can't connect with them, look, you can go through emotions, but you have to connect. And the connection is everything. It's second nature to me now. It's a muscle. I've tuned it. I've worked it. I feel like if you're not really truthful, if you're not putting that on the stage, then I don't see how you can fake it to make it, honestly. I don't know about you, but I love hearing stories about how people break into the publishing industry, how they become writers, land their agents, and ink book deals. We're going to hear stories from Austin Channing Brown about how she got started, then from Lee Child on using a pen name, and in a story that's really close to home for me, my friend of nearly 30 years, actress, royal, and now memoirist of Captive, Catherine Oxenberg, talks about how the power of the pen allowed her to save her daughter's life and countless other women as she took down a terrifying cult. I wanted to write this book years and years and years ago, and I was just sort of pitching it. I didn't have like a fully written proposal. And then I had a couple, like I still had like a baby blog. And so there were a couple editors here and there who were like, maybe, maybe this could be a thing. And so I sort of pitched the idea for the book and they were like, hmm, so you want to write a book about white people touching your hair? Interesting. <laughs> and so I was like, hmm, is that the whole memoir? <laughs> were you climbing a mountain while they tried to touch your hair? Did you? Like, what else happened? Yeah, yeah. It was very quickly rejected. <laughs> We're like, no, this is not what a memoir is, friend. And so I put it away and for years just continued to work on the blog and focus on the blog. And really just life conspired, to be honest. I wish I could say that I was persevering or something. The truth is Black Lives Matter happened. And Tanahasi Coates happened. Um, Between yep. the World and Me happened. Um, Roxanne Gay happened. Citizen happened. happened. Like the world just changed. Yeah. Exactly. 
And so as my blog gained popularity in that era, then people, publishers started contacting me. Well, I've used uh, other names before, and I find them very comforting in the sense that you're insulated a little bit. You have a little bit of distance. Yeah. The good things or the bad things, they're not quite happening to you. Exactly, <laughs> it's this other guy. So that you can have some perspective on it. And so I found that it's a pretty useful thing. People do subliminally confuse me with Jack Reacher all the sure. time you know, in the back of their mind which is fantastic when it comes to contract negotiations. <laughs> you come in as the hammer. Yeah, you know, I'm a really nice guy, but they think I'm going to kill them with a pipe cleaner if I don't get what I want. When you're walking the streets of Manhattan in the midst of writing a book, you've got to be thinking uh, as you pass people, okay, I could disarm that person, take them down by hitting them here, kicking them there. Do you go through, reach your head at all as you're living your own life? <laughs> Good question. Yeah, you know, the reach ahead comes from my real life. Sure, of course. Maybe as a little kid. You know, I grew up in a city that was rough and tough, and it was also a long time ago. Society was totally different, and emotionally it was a very inarticulate society. Nobody could really express themselves in any way at all. So anything was resolved by fighting. It was just like breathing. It's what happened. Then when the press broke, I went to the government with a bunch of evidence, which spelled out, in my opinion, racketeering, tax evasion, money laundering, identity theft. I had a lot of evidence. <laughs> like a massive wonderful. <laughs> yes, I do. Then I found out that one of my lawyers got a call from one of the prosecutors in the Eastern District of New York and said, we're taking this very seriously. They'd obviously seen me in the news and they'd obviously read the New York Times and they decided they were going to investigate and they said, you don't have to carry the burden of this on your shoulders alone anymore and just so you know, the FBI is moving in aggressively. That was November 9th, 2017. From there, besides speaking on a couple of occasions with the prosecution and the FBI, I was really left in the dark. So I had no idea. This is almost two years ago. I had no idea if they were going to follow through. Yeah. At that point, Keith had fled to Mexico. And I was thinking to myself, if this investigation fizzles out, which it has in the past when other people have brought evidence yeah. against this group, nothing ever happened. How am I going to get this information out there? How am I going to reach my daughter? And I signed with a literary agent, and she had me write a proposal and literally, I got six, this is in December of 2017, no one had been arrested. Nothing was happening publicly with the government in terms of pursuing these criminals. And Simon and Schuster basically signed a deal with me with no, there's no ending. <laughs> I love so that. I've never heard of any first-time writer getting a book deal with no ending. <laughs> so it took a lot of faith, and my agent is pretty damn incredible. So... Here I'm writing from January 2018 in real time. As events are unfolding, I am writing the story. And that's why I don't know what's on the next page. And it was a very harrowing time because I had no contact with India at all. And then periodically I would get little tidbits from be patient, from my lawyers, be patient, you may not see anything, but there's stuff going on. And lo and behold, in February of 2018, I start to 
hear rumors that they're closing in on Keith, who everyone had lost contact with because he was in Mexico. Right. So at that point, why do you continue to write a book when people start? Well, because I'd made a commitment to write this book. <laughs> but I feel. But the organization started to fall apart. First, Keith was arrested. Then Allison was arrested. Then Claire Bronfman and four other female defense. I think three others were arrested during that period. Literally days before the book went to publish. The book came out, I think, August the 7th or 8th of 2018. Yeah. And people were getting arrested on July 26th. <laughs> <laughs> and I kept calling the publisher, my editor, and saying, can we just add this one more thing, one more thing? It was like squeezing because the plot kept unfolding. I know. And the plot... It reads like a suspense novel. It could not have been more divinely orchestrated from a timing standpoint. I know. It's ridiculous. And then the fact that the paperback is slated to come out coincidentally. Right after. Right after the trial. They could not have predicted this. Like if you had a crystal ball, I honestly, it's sort of magical. For a nightmare, and it has been a nightmare. It is a magical, absolutely magical outcome. You know I've got to get a little spiritual here. I want to talk about where ideas come from, how they know what they know. We'll hear from Ann Patchett, who is bringing her practical side to this part of the conversation, and how Taylor Dane had a vision of her future when she was just a little girl that would ultimately come true. And what Tosca Lee believes is God-given to all of us. How do you get your ideas? Do they whisper? Do they talk? Do they yell? Do they come fully formed in visions or just like a slow curiosity? I go out and find them. I go out looking for them. They don't come to me. (laughs) No ideas are knocking on my door. Um, It's really, I think, the ability to follow a chain and to not grab on too hard at any point. So I'll have an idea, but then I just have to sit with it for a really long time because then it will turn into another idea and will turn into another idea. And inevitably, by the time I write something, it has absolutely no connection to what I had originally started out with. There's that moment, of course, when we're four or five, we feel omnipotent and there was this moment listening to radio and being able to sing along with it. You know, I grew up in an apartment building, so I was constantly staring out a second story window and dreaming. And I have to say that, yeah, right then and there, I said, I know what I'm going to be. I don't know what the rest of y'all are going to do, but I know what I'm going to do. I'm going (laughs) to sing like Stevie Wonder on that radio or Karen Carpenter. And I don't know about the touching millions, but I just knew I'd be heard by millions. That was still me, myself, and I at four and five, trust me. A lot of times... I'm writing and it's kind of like, where did that come from? I don't know that I would have come up with that on my own. So I would say, yes, often I feel like that. Mm. Yeah. And I do think God creates with us. So I believe that we are made in the image of the most creative being in the universe. When people say to me, well, I'm not creative. I always say, oh no, you are because it's part of your legacy. It's in your DNA. This part of our show is feeling particularly magical to me. So I think it's a good place to include a part of my interview with Tosca Lee, where my guest co-host Haley Baez asked Tosca about who inspires her. Haley is my fiance's daughter and she's 
a very successful brand of her own as a video gamer with Twitch. She's also a huge reader and Harry Potter fan, having read the entire series something like 15 times. I love where Haley takes this part of our chat. Well, the Harry Potter books and movies are amazing. I did just go to Harry Potter World for the first time last year, and I was... Oh my God, what did you think? blown away. And I had to step back and think to myself, okay, this all came out of a book, and this all came out of one woman's imagination. Yeah. So that's crazy, right? When you're standing there looking up at Hogwarts or in Diagon Alley, and you're, it's just mind-blowing. So It really does. Yeah. It's one of those things that you just kind of have to wrap your... Especially because she got the idea when she was on a train looking out at a field of cows. Yeah. It wasn't even like it was just a sudden, like, she had a dream about it. No, she was just gazing out at a field of cows, and all of a sudden, she just thought of it. Like, oh, okay, just super casual. Just <laughs> casually think of this entire universe. That's amazing. I love driving and traveling for that reason, because I think your mind is finally free to just play and wander during a busy day packed full of stuff. I don't think it does that, you know? Agreed. So that's why I think traveling is so important. We'll end this topic with an out-of-this-world book auction story, also from the UK via Rosie Walsh. I went out and I came out of pregnancy Pilates. Just, I was at that stage in pregnancy where you just look and feel really fat <laughs> rather than pregnant. Oh, yeah. and I just felt really heavy and a bit gross and, you know, just a bit nip. It was sort of dark evening. It was January in the middle of the winter. And I went into a local convenience store to get some water, I think, and checked my emails as I was sort of standing at the tills. And I'd been thinking earlier that day that I had sent my manuscript to my US agent weeks before, and I'd made all the changes that she suggested and hadn't heard anything. So I just thought, Oh, well, okay. Well, I guess nobody wanted to buy the book. I'll probably get the edited highlights for my rejections quite soon. (laughs) Anyway, I had an email from her saying, I think it was entitled, Oh My God. And she said, I sent your book out last night because we're having a snow day in New York today. And she said, I told editors that if they were going to be at home all day tomorrow, they needed to read this book. This was going to be massive. So then she was saying, I've had editors emailing me since like 2 a.m. She said, they all want to talk to you. They're super excited. She said, when can you get on the phone? Oh, my God. She's <laughs> oh like, God. what? And oh. I paid for my water and read it again. And then I realized it was real. <laughs> um, and so I was just like, typing back say now now tell them to call me Matt now and of course at that moment my phone ran out of battery no um <laughs> I didn't have my wallet because as I said earlier I was just being right. weird and decided to go out without my wallet so I had to walk home shuffle home heavily pregnant middle of winter right across town took me a good 40 minutes to get home and when I finally did get home I plugged my phone in and I'd already had like three or four more emails saying oh my god so-and-so and so-and-so publishing house wants to talk to you and so-and-so we're gonna have to set up a schedule And I started shaking at that moment, and that went on for about three days. And that night, I spoke to two or three, I think, editors. Well, one, certainly, of whom was just a legendary editor, and I couldn't believe I was on the phone to her. It was ridiculous. And then the next day, I had an entire schedule. I had the whole day all planned out by Alison, my American agent. And then I think part of the next day, too. And it was completely insane. Alison, throughout the whole thing, was at home because it was a snow day. 
she was in her pyjamas. We were FaceTiming constantly because neither of us could phone each other because our phone deals wouldn't let us phone internationally. Uh, she was in her pyjamas, but she had amazing hair because she always has amazing hair. So she looked kind of weirdly glamorous and very scruffy. And we were just kind of screaming at each other on FaceTime in between all of these phone calls. Oh my God. And then she sort of was like, right, no, I've got this. I'm really, I'm very serious about this. I need to talk to all of these people. I'm going to come back to you. And then I think I had about four more in sort of phone chats to go that evening when she FaceTimed me and said, right, I've cancelled those because we have received a preemptive offer that we just cannot possibly ignore. This is like stuff of dreams. And she said, you need to sit down. <laughs> so I sat down and she told me, and I just didn't talk for ages. And I was like, yeah, but what do you mean? And she kept repeating the amount of money. And I was like, yeah, but what do you mean? <laughs> I, just, I could not take it out in. It was so completely preposterous that this would happen to just me, just a sort of chubby pregnant woman shuffling around Bristol without her wallet. In this vein of inspiration, I want to hear from writers at the top of their game, talking about their process. Tom Bergeron and Lee Child weigh in, as does Meg Wolitzer. And then you write this great memoir, I'm Hosting As Fast As I Can, which again, on audio, by the end of it, I was so in love with your stories and your voices and the music, the way you used all the different vignettes. And I was so sad when it ended, but how do you edit? How do you write? Well, that's a book I wrote a long time ago, and it's currently holding up some of the finest windows in America. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, for me, it was just, I was writing a book about meditation, really, as a TM meditator for years, and the anecdotes were sort of the way I lured you in to write about meditation and being present and being in the moment, which really, I think, boomerangs exactly back to what Lee's talking about that it's almost a meditative state you're in when you're writing about Reacher, isn't it, Lee? It is, and it feels terribly insecure because, you know, I've got to deliver a book a year and it's got to be good, and I have no clue, no idea. It feels like the way I feel when I'm doing it, it's like I'm a movie stuntman and I just jumped off a high building. (laughs) I'm on a token like hell that the stage crew gets the airbag in position just in time. I. I think that you have to be open as a writer to, there's a line that, a title of from the writer Grace Paley called Enormous Changes at the Last Minute. I think you have to be open <laughs> to enormous changes at the last minute, which is that this thing that you always knew you were going to do in your book, and you got it, you got it nailed, you write the book, and then it no longer fits. Been there, been there, wasted. Well, it's never a waste, but like cut 120,000 words on my last one. Yeah, been there. But I always tell people, but you had to do, you had to go through them yep. to get to the other side. You and that chicken to get to the other side of the road. <laughs> but I did know what I thought would happen. And I did write it that way. But I filled in all the details because it's not a polemic. It, It's not a pamphlet, you know, it's a book with fictional characters who have to feel real. I have three more examples related to craft and editing I'd like to cover. First, we'll hear from Tosca Lee with Haley Baez on outlining her work. Then Catherine Oxenberg shares her collaborative process. And then Rosie Walsh on editing with one of publishing's most celebrated editors, Pamela Dorman. 
I love the way that you write your suspense. So do you plot your storylines out ahead of time or how do you draft them? This is something I've had to experiment with a little bit. I've learned that I really do need something of an outline. Now, that said, I don't do a super detailed outline, but I need enough of a roadmap to know where I'm going. That said, though, whenever I outline, there's a big difference between 30,000 feet in the air and boots on the ground, right? Yeah. So when you're looking down, that's one thing. And it's like a video game, Haley, right? So you're like literally down there and your vantage point changes and you can look down those dark alleys. It's different. And so in the process of writing, things change and things happen. I like leaving room for that kind of mysterious stuff that happens in the process. Yeah. Do you ever find yourself getting stuck? Like in cases where you're like, I want this to happen, but I don't know how to get there. Sometimes, but I'm really fortunate in that I've got some great resources in my husband and I've got some writer and editor friends who are great at brainstorming. So I know that I can always sit down with my husband or call somebody up and say, help me out here. I'm stuck. Think through this. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> there were two parts to the book. Part one, which was much harder to write because it had to do with establishing my childhood the early years with India, so the memories were a lot harder to reach, a lot dustier, and so it actually takes a lot of energy to go and dive into those memories and to reawaken them and to flesh them out and to make them three-dimensional. So that, for me, was the hardest part to write. The second part was extremely easy in a certain way because I kept copious notes, probably about 500 pages of notes from the moment that I was told India was in danger. I wanted to make sure that I had a very accurate and detailed record of what was going on. So to transcribe that with my writer, because it was so detailed, was a breeze. And then really the third part of the process, which was the second part of the book, was writing in real time. As the story was unfolding, we were transcribing it. Up until the last moment when we went to press, I was like, please, can we just keep adding things? Because the story kept evolving. Yeah, and it still is. The paperback's coming out coincidentally literally a week, 10 days after Keith's guilty verdict. So it just keeps going. And it's this crazy synchrony. There are many storylines. There's a woman called Kaya who appears in the book later on. And there were all kinds of storylines involving her, all of which got scrapped. And I thought they'd had all sorts of dramatic tension. Oh, gosh, they were absolutely awful. Um <laughs> And there were many scenes with ancillary characters, actually, that I scrapped because they were unnecessary. They detracted from attention, whereas when I was plotting it, they, good Lord, they felt so important. Most of them I took out myself. Some of them, either my UK or my US editor, just, you know, crossed them out in track changes. And the first time I saw entire chapters being crossed out, oh. um, my heart would be in my throat. Just like, oh, my God, what? Um, but actually, of course, they were always right. And with all of them, I just said to myself, just try it. Just try it and see how it reads. And surprise, surprise, it read well. I think when I look at myself, who has completed five novels, and then I look at Pam, who is my US editor, who must have edited hundreds and hundreds of novels, many of them major global bestsellers, Right. I sort right. of think she's probably more on the money than I am. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's my rule. Just give it a go. Leave it there for a few days. And if you cannot stop thinking about it, then put it back in. 
I think we should talk a bit more about avoiding distractions. Ann Patchett is a goddess when it comes to staying focused, and you'll see why. Not that you'll be up for emulating her. Meg Wolitzer and her husband, also a best-selling writer, they're a little more lax in this area, but no less successful. No TV, no social media. You read like a fiend. Is that your secret? No TV, no social media? In the spirit of all honesty, as I want to get off on the right foot, there is a television in the house. (laughs) I don't actually know how to use it. When my husband and I got married, one of the many reasons that I had not wanting to get married is I said I didn't want to live in a house with a television. And my husband said, I don't feel like I should have to give the television up just because you don't want to live in a house with one. Right. So when we got married, there is a television here, but as it turns out, he doesn't watch it. No um, and so it's really never on. He watches one football game a week during football season, and that is the only time it's on. Wow. And every week it takes everything we have to turn the television on. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a big part of it. But I've always hated television. So. Well, I'm noticing a trend here. I spoke with Seth Godin, who doesn't watch TV, doesn't mm-hmm. use Twitter. And it seems like a lot of the really prolific people I speak with are very busy reading and writing and therefore not wasting their time, quote unquote, on the boob tube. People keep telling me about all of these amazing series and how the best writing is on Netflix now. And I read television reviews and I read the series reviews in the Times. But I just think, one, where would I find the time? to binge watch an amazing television show. And two, if I wanted to pick up a hobby, I don't want it to be based around my eyeballs. I know. My eyeballs are exhausted. I know. So I don't want to like stop reading so I can watch a series. Now, does that make for difficult sometimes relationship stuff though? Because Writing can be so solitary, or do you share the writing with each other at the end of the day and connect that way? I sometimes feel that we're kind of like two people who work in a law firm. We pass each other without (laughs) talking. Hello, Bill. Hello, Jim. Hello, Sue. Don't even say hello, Jim and Sue. We just sort of ignore each other during the day. We like to come together at night, not really always to show each other work. I usually show my editor my work first. Because it's so intense, it's so incestuous to be married to a writer and have it all be about work all the time. We like to watch British television at night sometimes and not (laughs) think about our work. Love it. When we come together. But we do talk about our work and we do talk about problems we're having and we certainly have a lot of advice we can give each other. So why do we do it? Why are we so driven to write stories and to read them? I love Lee Child's honesty about his motivations. The whole story for me is honestly need. I need the love and approval of an audience. I think it is, and I've met an awful lot of writers and an awful lot of performers of one kind or another, especially stand-up comedians, for instance, who feel the same way. They're looking for something they did not get in their upbringing. Some kind of level approval or acceptance. And that's why I do it. I've always been in the business that has an audience. Because if I'm pleasing an audience, there is no finer feeling for me. I just (laughs) feel 
great. Somebody has enjoyed something that I've done. It makes me feel really, really good. And that then makes me feel really good about them. I love my fans. I love my readers. I'll do anything for them because they're completing the circle for me. I'm a happy guy because they are happy. Wow. That's beautiful. What about you, Tom? Well, it's interesting. As Lee was answering that, I was thinking about the nature of what we each do. And for Lee to be starting on September 1st to write a book that then comes out subsequent year, so you have a delayed response to the immediate work while you have a continuing response to the body of work. And for me, I love, as I think you both know, live television. I love that instant reaction. The, yeah. If something occurs to me in the moment on the dancing show or wherever, and it gets, a, you know, have 700 people burst into laughter mm-hmm. because something just occurred to me and I said it, that is a bit of a rush. It really is. I think the split personality part for me is that I never watch what I do. I never, for all the years that Dancing (laughs) with the Stars has been on, I've only seen one episode of it. Uh, The America's Funniest Video Show I maybe saw a handful over 15 years. I like the moment of doing it, and then I am often surprised when people recognize me because I have to remind myself, oh, that's right, I did it on television. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In front of a fairly large audience, so I think he's large enough. I can <laughs> yeah, like 38 million people. Yeah, well, the good old days, anyway. Yeah. So to continue on this thread, why do we read? Again, Lee Child explains why he thinks his readers come back again and again for his thrillers. I think he's so insightful here. Although, thankfully, there are exceptions to what he's talking about as Catherine Oxenberg's recent heroics have proven. To me, that is the exact purpose of fiction, to give you what you don't get in your real life as an alternative, and so, or as a consolation or an encouragement. (laughs) I mean, the best example for me, getting away from my genre, would be like romantic fiction. Where I used to live in New York, I've moved now, but I used to live on a downtown block where there were two model agencies. So every time I got on the subway, I would be sitting across from some stunning woman. (laughs) And of course, I never talked to her. I never asked her to dinner. I never asked her to come down to the islands for a weekend with me or something. Of course, I didn't do that. But in a book, you can do that. And that's what people crave. The things that they can't do in real life, they can enjoy on the page. And in my genre of crime fiction, that is very satisfying to them because real life crime is never really fixed. You know, if your house is broken into, they're never going to find the guys. They're never going to get your stuff back. There's no closure. There's no satisfaction. It's all very frustrating. And people are sick of it. So they turn to a book that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. A crime is committed. The guys are hunted down. The guys are caught and punished. That is so satisfying. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Really, what we're talking about is bringing more meaning into our everyday lives. You may have heard me discuss deathbed regrets on previous shows, things I learned from watching my parents in their final days. I love Abby Wambach's perspective here as a global soccer legend, activist, business leader, and two-time New York Times bestselling author, most recently of Wolfpack. 
And if you put all of your heart and emphasis into whatever you're doing, work or otherwise, that is a legacy that you'll always be proud of. So rather than having a picture of a legacy that you're trying to attain, that's like a reverse engineering that never really truly works. It's just like Glennon always says, in order to not have deathbed regret, ensure yourself not to have bedtime regret. The number one thing that people say that causes them this deathbed regret is their ability to live their own lives. So Mm -hmm. many people, they find themselves at the end of their life realizing they have lived a different version of what they wanted to live, a life that they aren't fully proud of because it's not exactly what they wanted to do. And if that isn't enough statistical evidence for people to stop whatever the fuck they're doing (laughs) and do what they need to do and do what they're moved to do, whatever that means, that's the number one thing for me Don't take a job just because it's making you money. That might serve some ego thing in you, but at the end of your life, whose life did you live? Did you live your own life or did you live the life that somebody else wanted you to have or that you thought that you were supposed to be living? We're heading into the home stretch here and I want to cover a few last things before we close with funny clips. First, I asked Meg Wolitzer how she celebrates finishing a book. And as you'll hear, even the traffic in Manhattan seemed to be cheering along with her answer. Then, to help you envision your own happy publishing travels, Abby Wambach and best-selling author Martha Beck send us off with some grounded travel tips. Things they do and think to make roaming the world feel safer, more nurturing, and life-enriching. I think there's a little bit of the Snoopy dance, you know, this little bit of sort of sense of real pleasure and excitement that you actually finish this thing. And I also think sometimes when you see the end in sight, you speed up and run toward it. And the ends are often shorter than you thought they would be because the minute yes. you turn the corner, it's like when you see the hotel that you've been driving toward, you run toward it. That's why it sort of goes a lot faster. So then you're that horn agrees with you. It's very excited. Exactly. That's right. That's right. They're, yeah, those are my fans, my people, (laughs) my window in New York City. (laughs) No, I definitely get excited, speed up, finish the book, and like order Chinese takeout. And then think I'm not, here's the thing I always think I'm not going to look at the book now. I'm going to give myself a break. Like, the minute we shut off the light, I'll like, lift the lid of my computer just to look at those pages again. You know, there's something in it. It's like you can't let go. Yep. And then it's a long process of not letting go when it goes to copy editing and you're still making changes. But I do feel really, really good. I feel like I say to my editor sometimes, I can't even believe I wrote that whole thing. It's like, I can't believe I ate the whole thing. I can't believe I wrote the whole thing. Yeah. And I just, like, who wrote that? It's so long. How did they possibly do that? If I really took it in, oh, thank you. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> they just, they're always like that. They want so much for me. I have to throw them books out the window every day. <laughs> Will no one leave me alone? I think I get very excited and I give myself just like the briefest break for kind of getting back into work. When I was with the team, traveling with friends was a huge thing because it didn't make it feel so lonely. Yeah. Now that I'm not, with the team, I find myself definitely feeling a little bit more lonely on the road. Having a plan is, I think, the most important thing. And now I don't even have a plan because it's a way of life for me. 
So I have a carry-on suitcase and a backpack that are very travel specific and they have lots of pockets and I have all of the things that I use has a specific place. So organization is the number one thing for me that makes me feel safe and in control when I'm on the road. Love it. And then making sure that for me, because I travel so much, frequent flyer miles allows me greater access to different things, whether it be lounges or upgrades or early boarding on airplanes. And then for each person, they just have to find what their specific needs are. So if you value working out, making sure that you plan that inside of your travel time, whether it be traveling later in the afternoon so that you can work out in the morning or getting up early and managing the times in which you travel. And then, of course, coming up with a routine when you are on the road. So knowing if the place that you're staying in, the hotel or whatnot, has good food. And if not, are you staying in an area that has food that's walkable so you don't have to get in a taxi or an Uber and you're spending frivolous dollars here and there just to get you to and from places? And then more importantly, I think that creating a plan for yourself in terms of what you will be doing on the road, I can very easily get lost in a season of some television show which puts me off in a direction where I'm not doing my work and I'm not reading my books and I'm not doing the things that actually serve me and fill me up with life rather than spend my life force and my life energy. And so figuring out what priorities you have that fill you up and the things that you do when you are at home that make you feel good and somehow trying to find ways to replicate those life force feelings when you are on the road. Because at the end of the day, it's still hard you're still going to be tired or jet lagged um, or uncomfortable or the pillows are just not the correct fluffiness. So there has to be an easy nature about traveling that I have, but the understanding that it's still difficult and it's still hard on the body. It's still hard on the soul. So I always like to give myself one full day of nothingness when I get home to do anything that I want. It's like my little gift to myself for the time that I just had to go spend on the road, whether it be through work or my philanthropy or activism. I love that. I do that same thing. I give myself a zombie day all the time. Martha, do you have any travel specific things that make you feel good? Well, I think being up physically, if you're going on an airplane, there's this weird psychological thing about being up high. It's a great time to evaluate where you fit in your life and where you want to go. For some reason, that Physical ability to look down over a wide span makes me more able to say, okay, where am I and where do I want to go? So I try to treasure that, even though, as Abby said, it's always hard. Stephen Pressfield and Tim Grawl had some parting words of wisdom for me on friends, sabotage, and resistance. Maybe you'll see yourself in my past experience. I just try to find really unsuccessful friends. <laughs> That's what my sister used to say to me. She's like, Linda, your friends are too pretty and too I, successful. I, I just seek out losers and then hang out with them. I feel much better. And if they aren't losers, when I meet them, I do everything I can to make them losers. <laughs> Is that why we're friends now, Steve? (laughs) No, you're too successful. You're making me nervous, man. I don't know. I can't take this. Uh, I've been meaning to tell you this, I can't take it much longer. (laughs) 
No, man, I see our sales figures. You're still, uh, you're still a little <laughs> bit ahead of me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you know, my wife heard this lady one time speaking and said it. So I've had the opposite problem, <laughs> if I'm being blunt, is that I end up hanging out with people and I'm trying to continue to move forward and they're getting nervous and they start grabbing me and trying to hold me back Oh, um, because they can't handle it. And Hugh McLeod talks about this in his amazing, wonderful book, Ignore Everybody. And he just talks about, and like, of course, I've done this to people too. But what my thing is, I want the people around me to be successful because that whole thing of you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Yeah. And we can get into really deeper stuff. But the idea that if that's bothering me, that other people are becoming successful that's a really good opportunity for me to ask the question why that bothers me so much. Mm-hmm. And if you back away from that, then you're backing away from the people that are going to make you better because yeah. they're becoming better too. And then the people that you're around that desperately want you to stay the same because if you change, it reflects badly on them. Yeah. They have that same problem. Mm. And this is where I come back to I have work to do here on this planet. And I want to find people that will support me on that journey and will be excited for me and realize what happens to me has nothing to do with them. And then I have to be able to hold that same space for my friends that are becoming successful. Because I have friends that maybe they're not as well-known of a writer, but they make four times as much money as me. Mm -hmm. And I can either deal with my stuff so that I can continue to be around them, so that I can learn from them, so I can make more money, or I can come up with reasons why they suck and blah, 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 and then it just creates distance, and I get to just stay the same. But Linda, your original question is really, it's very human and very true that we do tend to compete with our friends and stuff like that. One of my favorite filmmakers is David O. Russell, who did The Fighter and Silver Linings Playbook and joy, and all of those movies are about our family or our friends sabotaging us if we relate Mm -hmm. to the hero of the story. Mm -hmm. Because it's so true and so natural everywhere. But I think that, and this is something that I was writing about in The War of Art, that when somebody tries to sabotage us, it's really a reflection of their own resistance that they themselves are not facing whatever it is inside them that they have to do. Like, Tim, when you said your friends are trying to drag you down, some of them, you know, they see you living your dream, Mm -hmm. so to speak, and it's a reproach to them that they are not doing theirs. So, in other words, it's not necessarily that our friends are bad people or anything, but they're dealing with the same issues we're dealing with. So we need to be compassionate to them. But still, we also have to play hardball in our minds and just do our own shit and let them thrash around however they are going to do it. What a blast this has been going back through the past year to find these gems. Let's go out the way we came in today, smiling with Tom Bergeron and Lee Child. This is from a portion of Lee's rapid fire round which you heard earlier, followed by his final answer, which I think may be the most fulfilling, grateful, hopeful statement 
perhaps any writer has ever shared on this show. I love this one, Linda. My favorite way to watch a bad guy suffer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, being a writer, what just I'm thinking, does that mean what position am I in while I'm watching him, or is it the suffering <laughs> yeah, that I'm yeah, yeah, suffering? You're, <laughs> <laughs> you're uh, the parking lounger at an execution, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. All right. So I'll answer both ways. Laying on my sofa with a nice hot cup of coffee, watching him. I don't know, uh, drown, I think, would be good. You know, some, some barrel of water that has this steady drip, and he knows it's wow. going to take about four hours. You know, That is frightening how detailed that was. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and hey, two I, more quickly, my favorite, my favorite genre to read is, uh, you know, these days, probably history. Okay. Yeah. And finally, if I could come back as any writer from history, it would be? It would be me. I mean, I just, I think the luckiest life. I'm real happy with that. I can't imagine swapping with anybody. As promised at the top, I have gone back in time when Marianne Williamson was a guest with us. I have long admired her books, of course. But living in LA, it's her project Angel Food Charity that I've been most amazed by. Since 1989, it has provided more than 10 million meals for people who are too sick to shop and cook for themselves. The author made famous with A Return to Love has spread a lot of love in this city of angels. I think we heal in life one aha at a time. And I think that's every writer's hope is that there's going to be an aha in something that you wrote, some page, some paragraph, some sentence will make somebody go, yes, you know, we're living at an extraordinary time, an extraordinary time on the planet. The darkness is ascending, but so is the light. And I, every single day, you know, I, I'm living in New York now, so I, I'm in public transportation a lot. So I'm always asking, I always talk to people, who do you think should be president or whatever? I'm constantly reminded how smart people really are how noble people really are, if you really engage them in conversation. And I think also in the kind of community that you and I belong to, I think we have a critical mass of people who've read the books, who have listened to the tapes, who are already meditating, who are already seeking to forgive and to practice these principles. We just all need to step it up. The universe is endlessly malleable. It is definitely the 11th hour, but it is not midnight yet. Wow, that was a big show. A lot to put together. But so rewarding for me to be reminded of how much fun and depth we've had here in the past year. And I found great snippets for the book too, which is getting closer, (laughs) promise. As I've said before, I haven't partnered with any outside advertisers, many of whom have contacted me and promised to catapult our listenership. But I like this format. So if you've received value from anything you've heard here, I would so appreciate if you could spread your love with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. It really does help people find us. I talked about this show being a reason I'm no longer a full-time writer. And there's another reason as well. And that's because after the breakup of my marriage 12 years ago, I crawled back to my childhood haven of Carmel-by-the-Sea where I started hosting writing retreats. They not only saved me, 
but they've launched a lot of books. I am addicted to the win-win-win, to helping writers find their voice, their stories, their publishing dream teams. Oh, and to staying in my favorite town, where I still see images of my parents in my mind's eye in nearly every storefront and every restaurant. God willing, I will be teaching there for decades to come. I would love to meet you there. You can find info on remaining 2019 dates at bookmama.com or beautifulwriterspodcast.com. Lastly, I want to say that investing the time or resources to attend an intimate writing retreat like this is not possible for everyone. So every four to five years, I do teach an online book proposal course where I offer one-on-one brainstorming sessions and a copy of your big, beautiful book plan that I wrote with Danielle Laporte. I'm considering doing that again this September. I think it's been five years. So if you'd like to learn more, sign up for my newsletter over on bookmama.com or follow me on social media and we will get that info out to you as soon as I know. That's all for now. Love, love, love and right on.